Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 59 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you today? Yeah, good. We're both doing all right in our Groundhog Days respectively, but um, I did just have a lollipop for my headache, which you seemed a bit dubious about, but I'm sticking with the fact that it works. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, I'm not so sure about that. We'll see as the episode goes along whether... Uh, your theory prevails, but yeah, maybe that. How I hold yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we got some uh, Patreon shoutouts this week. Yes, thank you so much, and welcome to Dan Reynolds, Stephen Cooper, Jessica Henshaw, Kim, Michelle Edwards, Lisa Coleman, Melissa Healy, and Jamie Baker. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we're discussing today contains graphic descriptions and discusses crimes against young children. Some of the content is difficult to hear, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. So today, Chloe, we're going back to the 1930s, staying in that era of the Great Depression, which we discussed during our last episode on Arnold Soderman, the schoolgirl strangler. This case is one that I doubt anyone would be familiar with. I came across it during research for the aforementioned episode. I spotted an article about it and sort of started digging from there. And I came across a really well-written journal article by a lady named uh, Anita Stelmack, and she'd written about this case for the South Australian Historical Society. So that was very helpful in researching this episode. But this was a bleak time for our country back in the 30s, no doubt about it. We spoke a lot about it in the last episode, didn't we, Chloe? So we probably won't beat that drum all over again, but... You know, it would be a long 10-year climb back until almost 1940. People were scrimping their money, men predominantly scrounging for a day's work, and these were guys, you know, riding on bicycles, wearing old-school suits, often grease-stained, felt trilbies and bowler hats. You know, they'd be cutting wood, mining, labouring construction. South Australia, like any other Australian state at this time, had these very men doing these very things in December of 1934, the time in which this tale begins. Saturday, 8th of December, 1934. Mylaw, South Australia. 
As dawn broke on this fresh summer's morning, John Scotland was walking down the main street when he spotted a familiar face. William Arthur Fig, or Art as he was known, was riding his bicycle in Scotland's direction, wearing a navy suit and a dark felt fedora. Scotland knew Fig as a local woodcutter and figured he was on his way to work. Morning Art, Scotland called out to no reply. Fig kept riding south along Strathalban Road, a haversack on his back and a double-barrelled shotgun uncocked and slung over his shoulder. Charles Crossing was waiting for a lift on Strathalban Road, just a little way down from where Fig had passed John Scotland. Crossing was heading to his mining job this morning, and as Fig approached on his bike, Crossing offered a good morning, much like Scotland had moments earlier. This time Fig replied with a good morning in return, but he didn't stop for a chat, which Crossing thought was unusual. Art normally stopped for a quick chinwag. Instead, the woodcutter veered off down the dead-end track leading to a cluster of mines, mines where Crossing worked, and knew the surroundings to be thick scrub and dense terrain. John Charles Crossing didn't know at this moment, but this would be the last time he'd ever see William Arthur Fig. Mylor is situated in the Adelaide Hills, east of the city in the southern area of the Mount Lofty Ranges. It's a premier wine region nowadays, with a number of towns originally being German settlements, Harndorf being one we mentioned during the Wendy Pfeiffer case we covered way back in our first few episodes. The Pfeiffer family were from Mylor too, a town that was originally intended to be orchards and had a predominantly Methodist group of inhabitants. As such, there was no pub established in Mylor as the residents weren't drinkers. There was just a church, a school and a general store set up. And Mylor is very much still a small village town these days with a population of around 1,000 people. But we're rewinding some 30 years from the mid-60s when the Pfeiffer family lived in Mylor and we're talking about the Fig family who lived there during the Great Depression of the 1930s. William Arthur Figg was born in 1988. He was about 45 years old at this time, and he'd spent his entire life in the Adelaide Hills region, born and raised in South Australia, and he'd never left the place. His parents were from Mylor, he'd gone to school there, before getting work as a charcoal burner and woodcutter. These occupations and his family foothold in the area meant William Figg was always able to get work despite the tough economic times our country was experiencing in the 1930s. William enjoyed duck shooting, but it was his wood chopping skills honed in his day job which earned him public recognition. William won 10 championship titles for wood chopping in his home state throughout the 1920s and 30s. And it'd be in 1927 that William met and married Dora Berry. Dora was from nearby Achunga, and she was 18 years younger than William. The couple got to work pretty quickly, having four children in the next four years. By 1934, young Harry was six, Lindsay four, Thelma three, and Hilda two. The Fig family had lived in Stirling and Oldgate before relocating to Mylor, and they'd rented this place called Lion Villa, about a quarter of a mile north of the Mylor township, It was surrounded by trees and bush, this lion villa, so-called because of the four lion statues surrounding the front gate of the property. 
Friday the 7th of December 1934 was a day like any other for the Fig family. William worked splitting lumber as he always did. Nora made some plum jam and the children late in the afternoon visited the local store and bought some lollies. William Fig went off on his bike the following morning off to work, which we covered in the introduction, but this would be the last sighting of him. Things at the Fig household for the rest of the weekend were very quiet, suspiciously so. A neighbour, a young boy named Bill Haynes, noticed that the milk he'd delivered on the Friday was still on the family's porch, untouched, and he also heard two pigs in their sty squealing as if they hadn't been fed all weekend. On the Monday, William's brother Sam, who was also a woodcutter, hadn't seen his brother or gotten his usual parcel of supplies from Dora. She regularly made a tin of provisions for him and got his tobacco, which presumably William would drop to him. Sam lived on site, camping in the hills at nearby Macclesfield at this time. So Sam up and hitched a ride on a lorry into town and made his way to his brother's house at Lion Villa. The kitchen at the home was separate to the rest of the house. I'm not sure how that worked, but it was open. The rest of the house was not. The doors to the main part were locked. Sam saw his tin of provisions on the bench. It hadn't been packed and there was no sign of anyone. He called out tried to make a bit of a racket to see if anyone would respond, if anyone was around. But Sam got no response. Scratching his head, Sam wandered to the neighbours, passed the souring milk on the porch, and he checked with the Hayes family where his brother, sister-in-law and the children might be. They didn't know. They hadn't heard much from the place over the weekend. Sam went and checked the other neighbours. There lived a woman named Alvina Quintrell. She was quite good friends with Dora Fig. Alvina, too, hadn't seen or heard from the family since the weekend prior. Both Sam and Alvina thought this was incredibly strange, but the most logical possibility was probably true. With William heading off to work, Dora and the kids had probably headed back to her hometown of Achunga to visit relatives and friends. So that's where they travelled next. But inquiries with Dora's family revealed that they, too, hadn't seen her or the Fig children for some time. Sam's concern had gone from mild to major now, and he and Alvina headed back to Mylor, where they contacted the police from the general store and reported his brother's family as missing. From 11 kilometres away, two officers named Callaher and Ninnis travelled winding dusty roads from Stirling to meet Sam at Lion Villa. They knocked on the doors, yelled out all the usual stuff, but it was a cursory glance through a window that shocked Sam and the two constables. From beneath a blanket, the trio saw a pair of children's feet sticking out. The police forced the locked doors of the house open and made their way inside. They quickly discovered the bodies of Dora Fig and the four children, Harry, Lindsay, Thelma and Hilda, all in their beds in their rooms. They were quite clearly all deceased, lying on their backs and covered with blankets. So this must have been quite the shock for Sam to discover his extended family like this. Kelleher and Ninnis contacted Adelaide detectives and pretty soon four additional officers travelled from the state capital to Mylor to investigate. Dora had been killed with two blows from an axe. One of these blows was with the flat side of the axe and it had caused what reports detailed as a depressed fracture in her skull. The second blow was with the sharp end of the axe and had gone through her neck, severing down to her spinal column, almost decapitating her. The four kids had been struck just once in their heads, 
which, with the precision and skill of the cuts, was enough to kill them all instantly. All of the family members were dressed in their night attire, suggesting they were all murdered in their sleep. Police searched the property but found no signs of William Fig or initially any murder weapon. Three clean axes were found at first, alongside some of William's money, tobacco and work clothes. Eventually, police discovered a bloodstained champion plum axe under Dora's bed and they believed this to be the murder weapon. So obviously with no sign of William Fig and the manner in which his family had been found, the police had their prime suspect. The champion axeman, William Fig was the chief suspect in the murder of his own family. A mounted constable from Ichunga, an E.J. Colligan, was tasked alongside the aforementioned Adelaide officers with informing the Berry family, Dora's folks, that their daughter and four grandchildren had been found murdered within their own home, which would have been devastating news for them to receive, to say the least. News of the Mylor murder at Lyon Villa soon broke across the local radio and newspapers, and William Figg was named as the man who police believed was responsible. A warrant for his arrest was issued, and the fugitive hunt for William Arthur Figg began. William Fig was described as having a medium-sized but powerful build, 5 foot 10 inches tall or 178 centimetres, with a dark complexion and hair that was turning grey. He was also noted as having a long, pointed chin and being quite hairy about the body too. Police began working on tracing William Fig's last movements to try and piece together where he might have gone and what he might have been thinking prior to murdering his own family. This is where we get the Saturday morning reports of sightings of William Fig from storekeeper John Scotland and Charles Crossing, which we covered in the introduction. This was the Saturday morning after he'd allegedly killed his young family with an axe. And speaking of his axe, Fig's employer, a wood contractor named Joseph Cooper, he had commented to police that William had appeared quite normal on the Friday as he chopped wood for him at the Hamptons paddock. But he had noticed William sharpen an axe that afternoon, which he later took with him upon leaving work that day. This axe was near identical to the murder weapon police had located at Lyon Villa. The last sighting of William Fig before he committed the murders on Friday night or early Saturday morning was on his way home from work when the local baker sold him a loaf of bread. So what of William Fig now? Police knew his rough movements, but where had this woodcutter gone? And how much had he thought all of this through? He'd clearly put some thought into it, sharpening the axe as he left work, but he'd also left money and some work clothing at his home. Wouldn't he have taken this if he'd planned to relocate and start afresh? But perhaps he'd planned this all out too. Had a cache of getaway clothing and goods stored in the dense shrubland down this dead-end track towards the mines. Was William Fig planning to go off-grid and see this all out until the hunt was over, when he'd surface again and start a new life? No one knew for sure, and that was the thing. Motivations for why William would do this were quite unclear at this moment. In time, after the inquest, which we'll get to shortly, we'd hear some theories about that, but for now, it was anyone's guess what William Fig was thinking. All the police knew was that they had to find him, but that was a harder task than it sounded. 
As we've said, much of this area around where William Fig was last seen was dense bush and scrubland, an area that wasn't just subject to logging but also to gold prospecting at this time. In 1852, European settlers had discovered gold in the Adelaide Hills region, but in the long run, the returns on that find weren't as good as elsewhere during the gold rush, so many prospectors up and left for more fruitful, dusty pastures. But with things going the way they had economically, the Achunga goldfield had received some renewed interest in recent times, and it was actually home to some 30-odd men who were unemployed. They spent their days panning and prospecting for gold, trying to strike it lucky. And it was one of these campers who was situated at the Jupiter Creek diggings who reported to police upon them visiting the site that he'd heard a gunshot on the Saturday the 8th of December. Based on the last sightings, police figured that this was potentially William Fig. Was he trying to find food, camping out in the wilderness nearby? William Fig was said by police to be an excellent bushman, which was no stretch considering his age and occupation. The guy had experience and knew the bush. The manhunt was on, an official police search party consisting of armed criminal investigation branch officers and local constables were established to comb the thick bushland in search of the fugitive William Fig. MC Colligan was noted as heading up the search party, The police search continued through December and into January, with the team only resting for one day, Christmas Day. They moved from Seaman's Point, borrowing boats from Silver Lake and rowing 10 miles down the banks of the Onkaparinga River. They moved through almost impenetrable terrain in search of William Fig, but the master bushman remained elusive, one step ahead. As they reached Mount Bold, where the dam was under construction at this time, police's hopes of finding their man were subsiding. Pleas from the public being splashed across newspapers for the police to call in Aboriginal trackers were met with cries of budget cuts due to the economic downturn from the police commissioner. They simply couldn't afford to keep trackers on the books at this point and there were none nearby anyhow. By the time the new year hit, 1935, the police search party had dwindled to just that of two locals. M.C. Colligan and M.C. Hinks of Mount Barker. The rest of the officers had returned to Adelaide for other duties when Fig couldn't be found. The two officers, shortly after this, caught their first sign of what might have been the fugitive, William Fig. And this was a pencil and some fresh footprints the pair located on the sandy floor of a tunnel in an old mine. Colligan and Hinks were hopeful this lead might prove fruitful, that they were on the right track but reports from people in the area indicated that it mightn't have been William Fig in the cave after all. Two other men had been in the region, locals reported. It could have been them. Dejected, Colligan and Hinks pressed on, but it was fair to say at this stage in 1935, the manhunt for William Fig had stalled. He'd seemingly slipped through their fingers. Meanwhile, back in town, residents of Mylor were preparing for the coronial inquest into the death of Dora Fig. They were also calling for rewards to be issued for information leading to William Figg's capture, something the government at the time was not keen on doing due to the lack of funds on hand. The belt was pretty tight, and despite the police commissioner applying for the reward, all the state government was prepared to authorise was expenses related to Figg's extradition in the event he was arrested interstate. They wouldn't even shell out for wanted posters for the fugitive. As the two men searched for William Fig dawdled along, 
the inquest into his wife's death began. The details of Dora Figg's death and subsequently that of her children we've already established, so we won't go into those details again as it was all pretty clear. The interesting part of proceedings was hearing about the factors surrounding the Figg's marriage and why William Figg might have carried out the heinous act of killing his own family. The inquest, presided by Coroner Frank Chardon, seemed to almost play out like a bit of a criminal trial too. A solicitor named Nelligan acted for the absent William Figg and in the prosecuting corner, for lack of a better term, was a lawyer named Hud. There was a lot of conjecture in the reports I read about whether William Figg was actually to blame for this, whether he too had been murdered and if the axe police had found was actually his. Some reports indicated it might have been a neighbour's. I think in the end these jabs by Nelligan were ultimately dismissed and after it was concluded how Dora was actually killed, the coroner Frank Chardon began to really focus on the reasons as to why William Figg had done what he had. Jealousy was suggested as a potential motive and reports indicated that Samuel Figg was accused of having a relationship with his older brother's wife Dora. Sam staunchly denied this as a lie and that he'd never had a relationship with his sister-in-law outside of what was appropriate and had never heard of his brother William being jealous of him or anyone else until after the murders. When this suggestion came up, the coroner Chardon suddenly seemed very interested in exploring Dora Figg's behaviour and how she was perceived locally. Nelligan arced up at this, but the coroner shut him down, saying they had to consider every possible angle. Nothing supporting this assertion would come out. It very much appeared that Dora, in the coroner's words, enjoyed the reputation of being a good, faithful wife and loving mother in the district. What did come out, however, was testimony that William Figg may have had some issues himself in the past couple of years. Alvina Quintrell, who was a neighbour to the Figs and a friend of Dora's, who we mentioned earlier, she testified that Dora had told her that William had been both physically and sexually abusive to her during their marriage. She noted that William had once given Dora a black eye and had tried to strangle her only a couple of weeks before the murders. Alvina wouldn't elaborate in open court as to the reasoning Dora gave behind this, but she did write it down for the coroner and legal representatives. This would later be reported by Constable Ninnis when he stated... From inquiries made from Mrs Quintrell, it appears that William Figg was weak sexually and that a fortnight prior to the murder had nearly strangled Dora on account of his sexual impulses. Harold Figg, another of William's brothers, also testified and provided some interesting insights into his mental and physical health. Harold said William had suffered two very serious head injuries in the years before the murders and thereafter Harold had noticed over time a significant change in his brother's outward demeanour. The first injury William suffered was when he was hit by a passing car. This landed him in Adelaide Hospital for several weeks. After recovering, Harold noticed his brother would become depressed at times. He was more aloof and would wander off for extended periods. He also complained of violent headaches. This only got worse when a few years later a large branch fell on William's head. So these are interesting occurrences. We've certainly seen this in cases before, haven't we, Chloe, where trauma to the head can have a significant impact on the brain's function, people's ability to process things, their moods, etc., even with Arnold Soderman last episode to some extent. What wasn't clear, however, was if the alleged violence William had inflicted upon Dora in the time leading up to the murders had been going on 
you know, for some time before he sustained these injuries or only in the time after. Dora's family, the Berries, there was no testimony from them, which is understandable considering the amount of grief they were undoubtedly still dealing with at this stage. William Figg's family, however, despite Harold's descriptions and revelations regarding his head injuries, stood by him and refuted the allegations of violence. They were adamant he was a devoted family man of good character, he had no debts, always worked and supported his wife and children. Kindly and considerate were the words used to describe William Figg. So it makes you wonder what happened here, what had gone wrong to make him snap. In the end, the coroner determined that Dora Figg's death had been caused by blows from an axe and that William Arthur Figg had been the one to commit this crime on or about the 8th of December 1934. Coroner Chardon noted that while there appeared to be evidence of William Figg's mental health being abnormal, to what extent this was a factor in the murders, he couldn't say for sure. Chardon also concluded that hearings into the deaths of the four Figg children was not necessary as they'd only return similar findings and cause more unnecessary hurt and cost more money too. So the inquest was over and we'd heard quite a bit about the potential motives of William Figg, whether you believe those or not, and the head injuries he'd suffered, both interesting aspects leaving us with many ponderings. But while the inquest was officially over, the hunt for the man himself was anything but. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. We've covered a similar type of case to this before, Chloe, the Crawford family murders back in episode 21, similar in the sense of the perpetrator fitting in that same category, family annihilator, they call it. Alma Crawford got away, is still at large, if he's still alive. Overseas, we've seen similar, the Bishop family murders. Bradford Bishop murdered his family in a similar fashion and fled and got away, but they don't always get away. John List murdered his family in 1971 and he went on to live another life under an assumed identity until he was caught after being reported by someone who knew him in his new life and they'd seen him or the case of the List family on America's Most Wanted. So a couple of examples of guys who've done a similar thing, some got away with it, some didn't. The similarities end there because we're going to see a very different ending in this case with William Figg. As time wore on after this inquest into 1935, news of the Fig family murders spread through tabloids across the country. Sightings of William Fig were coming in thick and fast. In the large part, this was due to the way many men looked and got around back at this time. Again, we said this last episode, guys in dark suits carrying bundles and haversacks riding bikes. This was the common place, particularly regionally, where working-class, unemployed men were frequently travelling to find work. So this hampered the police investigation in another way. 
Not only had they exhausted limited resources available searching the bush in Adelaide Hills, but these reports from far and wide were just complicating matters. William Fig was reportedly seen at the races in Gawler, eating lunch at Seacliff, pottering around the dunes at Christie's Beach and camping close to the Eagle on the Hill Hotel. He was spotted in Sturt Street and drinking beverages with a female at the General Havelock Hotel in Hutt Street. Regionally, even more sightings flooded in. He was seen near Angerston looking for the river, Wilmington near some wheat stacks and even trying to sell his bicycle at Murray Bridge. One of the more serious sightings was of a man in a government roadwork gang, a guy who had a similar chin to William Fig. This road gang was working near Swan Reach when investigators got out there to have a look at this bloke. He turned out to be a John Smith, a man of no fixed abode, just another man trying to make ends meet during this tough time. He was able to verify his identity and location in the months prior. Sightings of Fig weren't contained to South Australia, though. Two tramps, papers reported, had seen Fig at Dartmoor in Western Victoria and also a man setting up a travelling picture show had seen him in Timboon. William Fig was spotted as far east as Gippsland, the Tambo Crossing, where he was seen chopping wood and washing his socks in a billy can. But perhaps the most compelling sighting in the hunt for William Fig came from a couple who'd actually seen him competing in woodcutting competitions in South Australia. This couple, John and Ethel Anderson, spotted a man they were adamant was William Fig in Quilpie in southwestern Queensland, and they saw this man chopping wood. This man not only physically resembled Fig, but he had scars on his leg, which William Fig had from mishits chopping wood over the years. He also wore a distinctive scarf, which looked like the one that William was wearing in the photos that had been circulated to police stations across the country. This man was taken by Queensland police, but before being extradited to South Australia, they had to confirm this was actually their man. The man claimed to be Keith Charles Wade, a returned soldier and itinerant woodcutter. This was all a big mistake, mistaken identity. Queensland police contacted their South Australian counterparts and through a rudimentary discussion and inspection of this Keith Wade, they began to think that this wasn't their guy after all. Wade was not hairy about the body at all, the opposite to William Fig. Wade also had all of his upper teeth. Fig apparently didn't have some of his top teeth. So this cast quite a bit of shade on this man being William Fig. Further investigations would uncover a former employer of Wade's who was able to verify his identity as the man he said he was. And again, police were back to square one in the search for William Fig. Closer to home in the Adelaide Hills, the hunt for William Fig persisted, albeit with diminished law enforcement. People still knew about the unsolved case and the fugitive potentially in their midst and were keeping a sharp eye out. Grasping at straws after William Fig's mother had a dream of her son throwing himself into a tunnel, police again searched areas near the Jupiter Creek gold diggings, specifically a spot called the King Mine, which was said to resemble Mrs Fig's vision. While they didn't find William in a tunnel or down a mine shaft in this area, they did find a couple of very interesting things. Firstly, in a deserted woodchopper's campsite several kilometres from the main road, police found a fire that had been prepared but not lit. It had suddenly been abandoned for some reason, seemingly. Had Fig seen them or heard them coming and escaped into the bush? If he had, he'd done it on foot, because on the 29th of July 1935, 
a local labourer named Charles Ma was rolling scrub not far from where Fig had last been seen by Charles Crossing. Ma ran over a black enamelled bicycle, which was subsequently confirmed to be that of William Fig. The news of finding the bike led to renewed interest in the locals searching for the fugitive, as by this point, a £50 reward was on offer for his capture, which doesn't sound like much, but it was hard times. That roughly translates to just under $4,000 in today's money. A pair of local labourers named William Fedder and Albert Elliott were two of the men trawling through the thick scrub and blackberries around where Fig's bicycle had been found, trying to find the man or a trace of him at least. On the 2nd of October 1935, Elliott and Fedder traipsed through a wall of blackberries and down into a narrow gully. This was near the Waterworks Reserve, close to the Onkaparinga River, maybe a kilometre from where the bike had been found. Here in this gully, the pair stumbled upon nearly a full skeleton of bones across a stretch of almost 20 metres. So Fedder and Elliot reported this shock discovery and the remains were inspected by police and medical examiners. The skull appeared to have been damaged by a large explosive force, something like a gunshot wound into the mouth or face. William Figg's shotgun was located nearby. They traced the serial number on this and confirmed it was his. And other remains of William Figg's were also located, including his haversack. A leather strap had been tied to the shotgun, which police surmised Figg had done in order to loop it around his boot in order to pull the trigger. So the police had found their man, not alive as suspected. He'd taken his own life and reasonably quickly after committing the murders. And we go back in time to when that gunshot was initially heard by those gold prospectors right after the murders. The theory now was that this was William Fig, but he'd shot himself at that very moment, and his body had been left to the elements and native wildlife in the last 10 months or so since. So the nationwide hunt for fugitive William Fig was over, brought to an abrupt end after locating his bicycle and body thereafter. The woodcutter bushman and family annihilator had butchered his family as they slept and then rode out into the scrub and taken his own life the following morning, unable to live with what he'd done to his wife and children. And we've told it the way we have for the sake of the story, but in reality, there were theories swirling early that William Fig had taken his own life, and this was due to him leaving his money, tobacco and clothing behind at Lion Villa. So there was that possibility that they were looking for a body the whole time. But with the reported sightings and his skills, it was also very possible that he'd gone the fugitive route and fled. Turned out that wasn't the case in this instance. An inquest into William Figg's death was held on the 8th of October 1935 in Stirling by Coroner Chardon once again. And obviously it handed down the foregone conclusion that he died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound on or about the 8th of December 1934, not long after he'd last been seen. So a hollow conclusion in some ways, particularly for the surviving family members, although they've probably all long since passed, our thoughts are with them and we hope Dora and her children are at peace. The Mounted Constable E.J. Colligan, who led the search for William Fig, later passed away in September of 1935 with what was described as some form of encephalitis that rendered him speechless. Some of the descriptions in the articles I read sounded like a stroke, but it was said that he tirelessly searched for William Fig and that this manhunt really had a detrimental effect on Colligan's health that might have contributed to his early passing. 
he was remembered as a stand-up officer in his time. The foundations of the house at Lyon Villa are all that remain today. A new house has been built next door on private land, but there's no lion statues. That's it, Chloe, when it comes to the tragic case of the Fig family murders. Yeah, wow. So I'm somewhat of an expert on family annihilators because of Criminal Minds, the fictional series, but um, in all seriousness, um, that is a pretty serious allegation, you know, for the time and for now, I guess. It takes some serious psychological impact or break, I suppose, or some kind of psychosis or, you know, trauma for something like that to happen um, past or at that moment. And obviously there's a bit we don't know about this, but it would be so interesting to know more about the circumstances of the family and if there were any psychological things going on there. We have heaps of that info in more recent cases, but, you know, not from this era. And plus those two accidents, the branch that fell on William and the car accident, that would have been a pretty serious brain injury, as we mentioned. And I wonder if that affected his overall health and either compacted any mental health issues he may have had or the trauma on his brain changed it and made him act in a way that he didn't previously. And, you know, obviously it's a bit unclear as well with the potential allegations of domestic violence, but, um, yeah, there's probably a lot of questions in this one that would be interesting to read that I guess we won't have access to, but that's pretty much it from me. What about you? Yeah, I just left with that 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 wondering how how this kind of happened. Was it premeditated? You know, there was that sharpening of the axe before leaving work, or was that something he did on the reg? You know. Also, I, I wonder. I think, you know, did he snap during the night and and woke mm. up in shock to see what he'd done and then fled? You know, that part got me. Why did he ride his bike into the scrub and sort yeah. of allow this manhunt to ensue if he was just going to shoot himself? You know, if he'd sort of planned it, why not just do that at, at home and the case would be yeah. closed? Same result. So. Um, Hey, I'm not sure. I think there's, there's like you said, there's a uh, probably a lot more that we just don't know that, you know, you'd be more privy to in recent cases, but seeing how old it is and the times, you know, they're probably, mm. uh, we just don't have access to that information. But an interesting case, again, back in this sort of bleak era of the Great Depression, uh, we, we got mm. some... Some good feedback on on the last episode we did, where people kind of enjoyed that historical aspect to the to the case to the episode. Mm. So, I you know, thought it'd be cool to kind of hang around in that era and, and talk about another one that I'd stumbled across. A very sad case. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that's it for me. Nice. Um, well, let's move on to our happy thoughts. Um, what's yours this week? Uh, so my happy thought is I bought a little synthesizer it's a uh, to 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 do some stuff we're sort of plugging away in the background at a at a second podcast um which yep. we've got hopes to sort of look and and it's going to involve a little bit more of that soundscapey immersive stuff um in it so i bought this little synth and it was only one uh and they sent me five the store i bought uh-huh. it from <laughs> and and so yeah and that, family you know, band yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, but I, I decided to do the right thing. I contacted them back and uh, and said, "Hey, look, I've ordered one of these. You've sent me five, and they were, they were about two hundred bucks. So they've, you know, um, but they've sent me five. So it was obviously a bit of a dispatch error. Uh, but the lady I spoke to was very appreciative and sent me the return, emailed me the return thing, so I could send it back. And she really appreciated the honesty. Um, but 
Now I got a discount for my next purchase now, a nice little discount. So when oh, I need to cool. get when we need to get something else for the podcast or maybe the new one, uh, you know, the, doing the right thing is kind of paid off <laughs> there because I couldn't <laughs> have done much with an extra four cents. So um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's my happy thought. That's nice. Um, mine is that I got a little um care package delivered yesterday. So um, you know, being a Victorian, we are locked down and it's a little bit shit, but it's fine. Um, and I've had a few things delivered um, over the last seven months or so. But, um, yeah, yesterday I got one from a, one of my best friends, Lauren, and it was just a nice little thing of like a, a candle and a um, bit of soap and a, a few other bits and pieces with a card. And it's just so nice to get something that lets, you know, she's also in the same situation as me um, and about to have a baby. But you know, it's just nice that to know that someone's thinking about you. So it really made a difference in my week where I've been feeling super flat. So yeah, that's mine. Oh, that's nice to hear. And moving on, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching for True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes and a whole bunch of other exclusive content uh, over there. We have uh, a Patreon episode we're about to uh, hit the record button on now on teachers and students, so that'll be uh, probably out now by the time this episode airs, if not very shortly. Yeah. And next week is episode 60, so a big one um, in milestones for us and cases to cover. So we've got the bigger schoolgirl murders coming up. Yeah, very interesting case, uh, highly requested, um, mm. very sad and a lot of uh, a lot to talk about in that one. So it's going to be a big one. Uh, thanks again for listening, folks. Uh, we'll be with you all again shortly. Thanks, everyone. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 